listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are thankful. Lord, as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, may we find therein, may we find peace, may we find contentment and fulfillment as we further our understanding of this part of your holy word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So in our study of Hebrews thus far, we've seen particularly in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11, all the way up to where we're going to be next week, which is Hebrews 6, verse 20, that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is basically telling us all, grow up, to grow up. And what the author of Hebrews has done is attach some significant warnings which should stir us all into the zone of being uncomfortable. Some have said that this portion of Hebrews disturbs those who are comfortable and comforts those who are disturbed. That's kind of a catchy phrase, but it's so true. And we'll go into that a bit more as we progress. You know, it was apparent, particularly from last week's sermon, that some of the Hebrew congregation had gotten so relaxed in their faith that perhaps not only did they fail to grow, but they never may have been actually have gone through an actual heart change conversion. So the author of Hebrews is basically telling us that although it's possible to be a Christian and then grow very slowly, it's also very possible that you never were converted. We come to understand, particularly in chapter 5, that to grow as a Christian means to strive for a deeper level of understanding of who God is. We learn that this is directly related to obedience to God's truth and to acting out that obedience in our lives. We learn that this requires God This requires that God lay down the foundation of what we really believe, and then we build upon that doctrine. We learned of the importance of sound doctrine, which is backed up by Scripture. These are all part of the encouragements that the author is trying to give us in the book of Hebrews. In that, we find from the author of Hebrews that this Christian growth does not happen automatically. There's no such thing as an autopilot as it pertains to our sanctification. Sanctification and Christian growth take both deliberate action and significant effort, coupled most importantly with God's enabling. And that's why he gave born-again believers the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Now, some claim that you know spiritual growth because it's very similar to watching a child's physical growth. I'll tell you, it's different than that. Because, you see, with a child, you can see when the child is not growing. 
But with our spiritual growth, it's very easy for us to assume the autopilot mode and get lazy and then not grow at all and even recede in our sanctification. Some symptoms of not growing, and I'll give you four. One would be having a haphazard or an infrequent study of the Scripture. Another might be reading only occasionally the daily devotions that you have available to you. The third might be deliberately deliberately not seeking out those spiritual disciplines that are so clear. And what am I talking about here? I'm talking about the spiritual discipline of prayer. I'm talking about the discipline of fellowship. And finally, not attending church when you could attend church. Those are all some of the symptoms that we might see. What's likely to happen is that we could be shrinking spiritually and nobody is aware. That's probably why the author of Hebrews is saying here, hey congregation, grow up. The author also gives us a significant warning, which Pastor Phil talked about over the last few weeks. Perhaps we are spiritually stunted, or sadly, perhaps we aren't genuine Christians. Now last week, Pastor Phil talked about several of the major views on salvation. He discussed the Armenian view, which basically holds that a true believer can lose their salvation and thus fall away from Christ for an eternity. He also talked about several other views of salvation that are hybrids of that view. And we learned that all views of salvation are somewhat incomplete because it's only God who does the saving. Is there any wonder that it's incomplete? It's only God that does the saving. God knows about your salvation, but we can only learn from the study of his word. Yet even in the study of his word, we see people drawing different conclusions. That, of course, is a little disconcerting, but that's why we need studied pastors. We need studied pastors along with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to discern God's will as we approach the subject of salvation. Having said this, it's clear to me and perhaps for others in this room that there are people in every congregation who may think they're saved but who are not because they have responded to a false gospel. We see this as a real issue in the American church and hence that's why we're studying the American gospel video on Wednesdays here at TVC. If you're not part of that yet, you may want to prayerfully consider being here either in the morning on Wednesdays or in the, in the evenings on Wednesdays. The class is about an hour and a half long. The class is a real faith builder and it's potentially life-changing. We see in the first part of chapter 6 of Hebrews that there are some within the church who although professing to be Christians were in God's eyes unsaved and they did not have regenerated hearts. They'd been shown the overwhelming light that Christ had brought upon them. In other words, they were enlightened. We see that in verse 4. It, the terminology used is they were enlightened. Doesn't mean they were saved. Doesn't mean they were converted. That means they were brought up to the edge. Right up to, to the edge. They may have even acted as if they were saved intellectually. 
They were brought all the way up to the edge of salvation, and then what happened? They faltered. Sadly, they never took the required step of faith. And little did they know that they were in danger of forever rejecting the gospel that God had given them so graciously. We learn from all that that we're in a dangerous position if we are professing Christ but have no evidence of fruit in our life. We're also in a dangerous position if we fail to repent when we run into sin in our lives, which, oh, by the way, we all do. We all need to continually practice repenting. 1 John 1.9 is a real keeper for a verse, and it reads, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cleansing from all unrighteousness means we are to continually turn from the sins that we commit. We will fail in this. Not we might. We will fail in this. But we must continually seek forgiveness and to turn from our sin back towards God. That is biblical repentance. Rebecca and I traveled to Romania in 2015. We met with some of the national pastors who we knew through the Philippian Fellowship Ministry. And in Romania, where the Philippian Fellowship currently works with 10 ministry leaders and pastors, Christians are referred to as repenters. They're referred to as repenters by those who are lost. Not as believers, not as Christians, but as repenters. I like it. I like that term. It very well describes the heart and the action steps of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. The consequence of non-repentance is that your heart becomes hardened and calloused, and in that condition remains unregenerate. This refusal to repent is like an intentional sin and is a direct affront to God. Danger awaits all of us who don't heed these warnings that are so clear in Hebrews chapter 6. I'll also say that it is unhealthy spiritually as well as physically for truly born-again believers to worry excessively about what we've read in Hebrews. Those with tender hearts and God-yearning spirits could go crazy trying to untie the doubts which could come from what we've studied thus far in chapter 6. So it's always important to know what you believe and why you believe it and make sure the it agrees with God's word. So let's now read Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 12 and try to understand what the Lord has for us in this particular part of scripture. I'm reading from the ESV beginning in verse 9 from chapter 6. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's very much like what we sang about already this morning. 
So let's begin by looking at verse 9. And it begins saying, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. The though we speak in this way refers to the stern warnings that were referenced by Pastor Phil last week. And we're going to mention them again because they're very, very important. So as I said before, the writer of Hebrews knows that there are more than likely people in the congregation who are not believers, yet profess to be believers. We see in the parable of the weeds and the wheat in Matthew 13, uh, and I'm looking at verses uh, 24, 29, where at night the enemy comes in and sowed seeds of weeds and with the wheat. This kind of a tongue twister, sowing seeds of weeds in with the wheat. I think the scripture has a better way of putting it, so I'll read it. And in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. So we see here that Jesus talks about the wheat and the weeds and how it's not easy to determine what is wheat and what are weeds at the, at the earlier stages of its growth. And when it comes to our hearts, that task is impossible for us. The final determination of who has a real relationship with Jesus and who does not is clearly the Lord's job and not ours. But the writer of Hebrews is telling us that there are people that need to hear the warning of this message because it applies to them. And as I mentioned before, the author of Hebrews knows that there are some sensitive souls who are redeemed and in hearing this message might become discouraged by the strong rebuke that's taking place. The Lord here wants the flock to know that he is giving this warning, not in anger, he's giving this warning in love. We see in Hebrews 6 verse 9 that there is a switch from warning to actually encouragement. We see this when the author refers to them as beloved. This is the only time in the book of Hebrews you'll see that word being used, beloved. In the New Testament, this word beloved stems from the word agape. The word of agape means love that is unconditional. The word of, of agape, the word agape is only used amongst genuine believers. In other words, the wheat which is a metaphor for genuine believers is being addressed here. Not the weeds who are the unbelievers. He softens us even further by the second part of verse 9, which reads, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The author is referring here to the previous warning of verses 4 through 8 and is saying that if this warning doesn't pertain to you, that's okay. 
We're going to examine it anyways, and we're going to learn from it. So the author is trying to make sure that those who this warning applies to take it to heart and turn to Christ rather than going backwards, thinking they are genuine Christians, but they really aren't. See, at that point in time, many of them were thinking about reverting back to Judaism. And that's where the, the problem is. At that same time, he doesn't want the genuine believers to doubt their salvation. And he wants them desperately to be assured of their salvation. And we'll see in verse 10, with this assurance of salvation is addressed. In fact, it's guaranteed because God sees the work that's been done in their hearts and those that he has saved We'll discuss this more deeply in a bit, but let's first go back to verse 9 where it mentions things that belong to salvation. I think it would be good if we talked about those things that belong to salvation. I think that was probably the intent of the author. He wanted all those that heard the warning to consider all those things that belong to salvation. So I'm just going to read verse 9 again where it says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So what are some of those things? Well, first of all, genuine salvation is always accompanied by some visual evidence. Take a look at Matthew 7, verse 16, where Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits, and then ask this question, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And then Jesus, in the parable of the sower, shows us that the good soil will yield its crop. Not might yield its crop, will yield its crop. You see, there's always visible evidences of new births that are unmistakable, always just like their unmistakable signs of a life in a mother's ultrasound of the baby growing with insider, where we can see the heartbeat of that child. The four Gospels, as well as Paul's writings in the book of Psalms, all describe various evidences of a heart regenerated by God. So now the author of Hebrews focuses on a major evidence of the genuine salvation, which is our faithful service to others out of our love for God. We see this primarily in verse 10, which reads, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. You see, ministry that shows us evidence must first and foremost be God-centered and not people-centered. First and foremost, it must be God-centered and not people-centered. We often say that we are doing things for the glory of God, but quite often we don't live that out. It seems that oftentimes churches can be heavily God-focused, which means that their worship, their Bible studies, and their education are all focused towards knowing God better. Unfortunately, they leave out the importance of serving others. On the other hand, some churches are focused totally on providing service to others and to the community, but have fallen down when it comes to God-focused worship and God-focused education. The key here is to love God and to love people. 
I worked with a pastor, and there's a number of people in this room that worked with a pastor a number of years ago who heavily emphasized that our mission was to worship and serve. It wasn't worship or serve. It was to worship and serve. You see, you can't do either one very well without doing the other. Now, the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him, what was the greatest commandment in the law? And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 36. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, end of quote. It's interesting because Satan would love to separate these two parts that God designed to be together. Satan would very much like churches to be all about either worship or all about serving, but not about doing both. Satan knows that without loving God with all your heart, you're not going to be able to sustain service to others for very long. Satan also knows that when we love the Lord with all our heart, yet we don't serve others, that our witness to a lost world will be diminished significantly. In the book of James, it says, faith without works is dead. This means that pure worship is always accompanied by service to others, always. Whether it be service to the saints or service to the community, which is our witness that's our call as true Christians. Some believe that Christ, when he answered the Pharisees' question by saying to love the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul, that perhaps Jesus waited to see the reaction of the Pharisees. Perhaps the Pharisees thought that Christ was through with his answer, which only addressed worship of God without service to others. They must have been disappointed when Jesus added to his answer when he said, the second greatest commandment is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here we have worship as the first and foremost important commandment and added to that the second most important commandment, which was to love your neighbor as yourself. Our Lord presented a package with two parts which are not intended to be broken apart. Satan, as expected, tried then and continues to try today to divide the two. Church, we cannot let that happen. Worship and serve, not worship or serve. Replacing God's glory and love for his name with works of service was not God's intent. And we see that here in verse 10. At the same time, God doesn't want, want our witness of doing good works to be replaced by worship alone. If we go to Hebrews 6, verse 10, and we see how it does explain that even deeper. Quote, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So as we see here, God will not forget your works of service and love for Christ Jesus. He says in this verse that his justice is the basis of his remembering. We see this in Matthew 10, 42, where Christ says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is his disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. 
God will not forget. And his justice is the basis of his remembering. Verse 10 reads, For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. It says that we serve in the past and we still do. You see, caring for one another in the church is essential to real worship. That's the purpose of our gospel growth communities, our GGCs. Some churches call these small groups. Some churches call them care groups. These are groups of people that come together to lift up the name of Christ by serving one another through holding each other accountable, by praying for one another, and by living out our Christian lives together. If you're not in one, I would strongly encourage you to join one because that makes your worship here at TVC more complete. So we see from verse 10 that the love of God is separate from service to the saints, yet you can't do one very well without doing the other alongside it. They're connected. We show love of God's name by serving the saints. What the author of Hebrews describes begins vertically with the love of his name. In other words, it's vertical worship. And then expresses itself horizontally in service to one another. We serve for the sake of God who sustains us to do more service. That's how the system that God gave us is intended to work. He gives us vitality, which gives us strength and ultimately gives us satisfaction and gives us contentment and gives us communion through our complete worship of God. We don't serve because of the good feeling that we get through helping others. Remember... Remember about feelings and how fickle they are. You see, it's not about us. It's all about God. It's all about the life of Jesus. It's all about his sacrificial death, and it's all about his resurrection. A byproduct of this complete worship and serving is the fact that he gives us contentment in what we're doing. When I was in the military, we lived down near West Point. And we went to a church called Grace Community Church. It was a great church, a growing church. At that church, there was a young teenager who could play the piano with a sense of expertise that I had never seen before. Never seen before. And after getting on the stage and playing a wonderful piece of music, he came off the piano stool and he headed back towards his seat in the congregation. And most of the congregation were clapping. For him and he looked at the crowd of many people and he put out his hand as if to say stop it's not about me it's about him it's about God it's not about my name it's about his name it's not about my talent it's about his gifts you know I learned a valuable lesson that day from that teenager I need to continue to learn it over and over and over again. It's not about me. We're called Christians, and a Christian is one who bears the name of Christ, a Christ follower saved by grace. Why is it so easy for me to forget that? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says, Whoever serves as one 
who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's a question for us today. Do we, in fact, long for God? Do we long for Jesus to be known as our Savior? Do we long for Jesus to be loved personally? How about as a church? Do we long to be a church focused on bringing glory to God's name? To be a church made up of Christ followers who keep serving and serving, using our spiritual gifts, encouraging one another, showing acts of kindness for one another, and pouring into the community where we live, all for the name of God? Knowing that his justice will only provide us strength and encouragement and will provide and also guarantee us that he will not forget us. We need to evaluate how we're doing in those areas, not only personally, but also as a church. You see, at its core, the basis for loving God is to recognize that he first loved us, even while we were yet sinners, is what Scripture says in Romans 5. You know, in the psychology of today, we often read about how we must learn to love ourselves before we can love God and love others. I'll tell you, that certainly is a perversion of the two commands that Jesus gave us. That second commandment of loving our neighbor as ourselves is absolutely dependent on understanding the first commandment to be true. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If it wasn't true, if that wasn't true, then we would be totally self-focused. If we love ourselves more than we love others, and that is our core belief, then we have got a real problem as far as serving others and truly loving God. You know, and I myself, I myself struggle with loving myself more than loving others. It's a daily battle for me to surrender and repent and get back to worshiping God more completely. You see, to love God is not only to have passion for his glory, but it's also to see him in his proper place of honor over every creature, which, oh, by the way, includes me and all of us. You see, loving God and loving Jesus and loving the Holy Spirit as he works in the lives of the faithful and draws the lost to himself is the basis of our service and the basis of our faith, and the basis of being a born-again Christian, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus to Peter, just before Peter was commissioned to go out and serve others. And I'll read from John 21, verses 15 through 17, beginning with verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus then said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, to him back to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see, we can never truly love and serve others as God intended us to do until we first love Christ. I, for one, need to be reminded of that daily. Peter needed to be reminded of that three times. I need it more than that, and I need it every day. So perhaps this is difficult for us because we don't take to heart the first part of Hebrews verse 10 where it says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Now a little history may be in order here. At that time, the Jews had experienced a tremendous amount of suffering, and they were expecting to suffer further still. I'm sure in their lives, Satan was tempting them towards unbelief and doubt about their suffering, seeming unfairness of their God. Satan wants us to doubt God's goodness and his fairness as well as God's love for us. Satan wants us to believe that God has forgotten us and that he is unjust. This is why the author of Hebrews says in the beginning of verse 10, for God is not unjust and has not overlooked you. Satan wants to deny us the privilege of relying on God's promise of I will never leave you or forsake you that we find in Deuteronomy 31. You know, trials and hardships, they can do that to our faith. Whether it was 2,000 years ago or yesterday or today or tomorrow. Once we begin doubting God's love for us, we can begin to pity ourselves and then distance ourselves from other believers and their encouragement. Isolation results in bitterness. Isolation results in despair. We need godly encouragement. And here we have yet another reason for joining a gospel growth community, that being fellowship. Now, the author encourages us even further if we take a look at Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12, which is our, our memory section for this, this week. And it reads, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full, the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's verses 11 and 12. You see, the love we show for Christ through serving others is not without effort. Oftentimes it's inconvenient. Oftentimes, it's physically and emotionally draining. Serving others is more like a marathon that takes place throughout our life. It's not like a sprint. But we must realize that love is not an optional trait of being a Christ follower. We cannot become sluggish, as we see in Hebrews 6, verse 12. Paul also mentioned this in Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10 where he said, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith, end of quote. So you see from here, we need both faith and patience. 
which are both fruits of the Spirit, which God promises as part of our progressive sanctification. We're in, a need, we're in need of frequent encouragement, and we're in, in need to be frequent encouragers of others. We need to be faithful to God in our devotion to Christ, in prayer, in studying His Word, in glorifying Christ, in fellowship, and in worship. We can't serve others if our cup is empty. Our cup needs to be filled to overflowing with God's love. When we desire and when we do this correctly, it says in verse 11, we get full assurance and hope until the end. In other words, we get assurance of our eternal salvation. 1 John 3.14 confirms this when John writes, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Anyone who does not love abides in death. So loving God and loving people also provides us with assurance of our salvation. <clears throat> Philippians 1.6 says, this is a favorite verse of Pastor Vermillion. He said, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, the more you see God working through you, the more assurance you're going to have. And this all begins with worshiping him. The good works are not the reason or the cause of why God assures us of salvation. Rather, good works are the evidence of that assurance. In James verse 26 of chapter 2, it says, Faith apart from works is dead. So how do we keep from becoming sluggish, as it says in Hebrews 6 verse 12? And I'll just read it again. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, one of the keys is to become, quote, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In this verse, the author is referring to the Old Testament saints such as Abraham. And when we get to chapter 11, Pastor Phil will get into this in more detail as he preaches about the heroes of the faith. The point being that we should imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. God's promises are fulfilled in eternity. Sometimes we get that wrong. They're fulfilled in eternity. It's our faith and his promises that God uses to carry us through the trials and the sufferings of this world. Will we endure those hardships? With faith in Him, the answer is yes. That faith that we mentioned here is the byproduct of loving Him with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Is your cup half empty or, or is it full? Or is it overfilling with God's love so you can minister for the glory of God? Are life's hardships draining your energy to serve for Him? You know, when we were preparing teams to minister in Eastern Europe, I had prospective team members not only practice delivering their testimony of salvation, but also study the culture and the customs as well as the history of the people to whom they're going to minister. And for about six months... We shared, that was in our preparation for six months, 
we shared devotions together, we prayed together, we learned parts of the language, we shared our personal struggles as well as our desire to, to minister to a country of 11 million that was overwhelmingly atheistic due to the influence not only of communism but also of false faith. And one of the important things we did was to read biographies of Christian missionaries and report to the team what we had learned about the missionary's belief in Christ and about God's assurance and about God's provision in times of very difficult hardships. We were all encouraged and excitement grew with each report that we, we heard. Now, I brought a few of the books along. Um, I'm not going to give you a book report on each one. Thank the Lord, right? But these are some of the books we looked at. This one right here called God Smuggler, I will tell you, if you haven't read it, you ought to read it. If you've only read it once, you ought to read it twice. If you've only read it twice, you ought to read it three times. It'll get the juices flowing like you wouldn't believe. It's a page turner. It's about a young man who got saved when he was serving in, in the southeast over towards Vietnam and those areas in Burma. He was serving in Burma. He gets wounded. He comes back. He gets saved. And he feels the Lord calling him into mission work. He's, an, he's a, a non-believer. He gets called into mission work. He ends up going into Czechoslovakia. He's going into Romania, Bulgaria. And now this same man, Brother Andrew, is the head of Open Doors Ministry that goes into Pakistan, in Iran, and Iraq. This is a, a story that will get your Christian juices flowing as far as evangelism. I recommend it to you. Another one, Amy Carmichael, who went into India. This, this is a... A great book, a great testimony about a gal who just heard God's call and took it seriously and did tremendous things for the Lord. I will tell you, this, this particular book right here, I taught a class up in Waldemaro. It was called, Please, Lord, Don't Take Me. It was about missionary work. It was called, Please, Lord, Don't Take Me. And there was a gal that was in that class, and I, I gave him the assignment of, of picking one of these biographies. She picked this one here, Changed Her Life. Now she's one of the leading people in Waldemar that's providing service to the community at that second chance clothing. It changed her life. I would recommend any of these books. And I got a number. I got Nate Saint who went down in Ecuador. Uh, Gladys Alward who went into China. Wonderful, wonderful uh, books. And I probably got a dozen more at home. And I'll tell you that um, what I would challenge you to do is borrow one of these books from me. Take it home, read it, and then tell me how it went. And we'll have a discussion. And I'm telling you, it'll, it'll change your life. God willing, it'll change your life. See, verse 12 says, Do not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, becoming sluggish is a choice. It's a choice. And I love 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Perhaps it's because it was one of the first verses that I memorized at the age of 36, shortly after I got saved. I rely on this verse probably more than any other because it applies to my, my life so often. I'll read it. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. You know, perhaps studying and embracing the faith and the perseverance of missionaries will help inspire you to keep on progressing and to finish the race strong. It's interesting to note that 
that there are three special words that are incorporated in these four verses that we've been discussing today. If we take a look at verse 12, there's that word faith. In verse 11, the word hope. And in verse 10, the word love. I've been challenged by studying these four verses to ask myself, am I growing in these three areas? Am I living by faith in God's promises? Am I growing in the hope God gives which overpowers the temptation to be discouraged and depressed. Paul said in Romans 15, 13, he said, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, am I growing in love? Do I love God more and more each day and cherish his word? Do I love his people and the lost? Do I love them enough to commit my time and resources so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I willing and ready to cultivate relationship and share with others the same grace that was bestowed on me in my search for God and salvation? In the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton wrote, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. May we all be seeing more and more clearly as we grow old, but now we see, but now we see. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may we grow in our faith and in our hope, and may we grow especially in our love. Lord, may we be known as a church of repenters and not become sluggish, but willing to finish the race in your power and for your glory alone. Heavenly Father, I love the words that you gave to Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not of our own doing, it is the gift of God. Lord, may we as a church steward well your gift of yourself. Thank you, Jesus. What a gift. What a Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others. And for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria.